is inspired by somebody named Richard Bauckham. Richard Bauckham is the uh, scholar, senior scholar at Cambridge, and it's important for me to just give credit so that I'm not plagiarizing. Um, now, mind you, every sermon I write is my own, but from time to time, these ideas get inspired from others. And so today, uh, Richard Bauckham talks about this. There was another scholar in England back in the day. His name was John Owen, and he writes this about the Holy Spirit. Uh, he, he writes a book about the Holy Spirit, and it was his attempt, uh, it says, it was his attempt to make a reply to the rationalism of the Socinians, the mysticism of the Quakers, and the fanaticism of the enthusiasts. Sounds like he would have been very at home here in Kingdom City with all of the broad range of Holy Spirit expression that we have here, uh, the rationalism of the Socinians, that probably sounds like us here woven, the mysticism of the Quakers and the, the fanaticism of the enthusiasts, all to say um, he attempted to find a middle way, and that's my hope. My hope is to provide a foundational teaching on the Holy Spirit here at Woven, to provide a middle way, or not just a middle way, but a solid teaching that at the same time, I think, will also um, give, that will also respect the different varieties of spirit experience that we're seeing. Um, the phenomenon that we're seeing here at Kingdom City is very, very real. And the things that are happening, and you might hear tongues, or you might see different things and expressions, and we don't say, well, that's different, or that's not, we don't discredit it. We recognize, and we grow. We're all growing. And so today to offer a teaching on the Holy Spirit. This is my endeavor. Let's go ahead and start with that first heading in your notes, water, water. The Holy Spirit as water. Let me just tell you my own personal story. When it comes to water, in the early 1990s when the dinosaurs roamed the earth in the Mesolithic era, <laughs> there's some here that they say the 1990s is not that long ago, um, but I was baptized. I was baptized in the early 90s, and I was baptized by sprinkling. And I remember I was um, a teenager, and um, I got on my knees. I was already a Christian at this time, and the pastor grabbed this handful of water out of this thing, and he dumped it on my head. I said, I thought I was going to be sprinkled. I thought it was like a toothbrush going like that or something, and instead it was just this glop of water, and my 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 outfit and my spiky hair was all deluged. Um, that was in early 1990. And then, in the early 2000s, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so in the early 2000s, I was already a Christian, mind you, in the 90s when I was baptized with water. But in the early 2000s, this baptism of the Spirit that came to me, um, it was not just an emotionalism. It was that too. It was not just the enthusiasm of the, rash, of the fanaticists, and, but it also came with this deep and profound sense of um, my condition, of my sinfulness. It resulted in confession. I began to confess my sins, and it resulted in a wholesale change. My ego was challenged for the first time in my life by the Holy Spirit. And so that was almost in some ways a second baptism. First baptism in water and a second baptism in spirit. The question then is, is there a biblical precedent for this idea for a baptism of the Holy Spirit? We hear that a lot here at Kingdom City, and it's good. It's a good thing. I want you to learn about this. A baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's a good thing. But what is the biblical precedent? Acts chapter 2, verses 17 
Listen to the word of the Lord. I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and and they shall prophesy. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for the word of the Lord. What we have here is this picture of this pouring forth. Pouring forth. What is this pouring forth talking about? My son is not here, is he? Okay, I'm going to tell a story. Um, it's not too bad, but it's, it's, uh, it's, I think it illustrates some of the pouring forth. Um, and uh, this goes back, I guess this was, this was, he's 11 now. So this was a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, this is when he was a toddler. He was a toddler, and he was crawling around, kind of like Benji in the back, Benji here walking around. And I remember it was a hot uh, West Coast evening, and I went out um, to get food for my little family. Uh, I went to KFC, and they had this special, and it was this jumbo root beer float. I was really thirsty. It was really hot, and I said, that's, that's my jam. That's my, that's my thing. I bought this root beer float, and I was getting ready, but I set it down on the kitchen table momentarily, so I could just wash my hands or something. And in that span of time, my little boy, Austin, at that time, toddling, crawling around, somehow managed to crawl on top of the kitchen table, reached for the root beer float, jumbo-sized, and, of course, big cup, small hands, heavy beverage, and he tipped that thing over. And I remember um, losing it. (laughs) I'm not proud of the fact. Because at the end, I was looking forward to it, and I picked up the cup, and there wasn't a single drop left. I remember going like this, and there wasn't a single drop left. And, um, of course, the table was enjoying the root beer float. It was all over, and I wasn't about to lick that thing up. The point that I'm making is the word pour out here, the word pour out in both the Greek and the Hebrew sense, because the author's quoting Joel, the word is very liquid. There's a very liquid sense here being used that it's something being spilled, There is an inundation behind this Greek word and the Hebrew word for pour out. There's this quantitative measure. So something is not just being like dripped on you or sprinkled. Something is being spilled and inundated. When I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, it was such a profound, life-changing, existential, phenomenological experience that the very fabric of who I was had to change. I could no longer continue the same way that I was before because I was inundated. Now, some people, some people call this waves of emotion or uh, there's, there's a famous, uh, uh, I mean, if you've ever heard the name Bill W. Of, of Alcoholics Anonymous fame, the founder of AA, how did he get sober from alcohol? It started with something that, that's famously known as the hot flash the hot flash episode. He converted. And in the same way, you might have hot flashes or you might have a deep sense of conviction, but there is a real, liquid, quantitative spillage, just this complete drenching sense about it. Friends, 
When we talk about baptism, it's important for us to understand that baptism in the Holy Spirit is a thing. It is the experience of many Christians. It is life-changing. It is an inundation, and it is quantitative. So baptism, it's more than just liquid. More than just liquid. It is also uh, spirit. You hear those words, I will pour forth my water on all men. That's not what it says. I will pour forth my spirit. Lord, I just want to ask at this moment that in this place you would pour forth your spirit on all mankind. Lord, even as I just make this walk around this room today, in every row, in every chair, in every family that will sit in this service, for every person who hears these teachings and for every individual that comes into contact with the Word of God, may your Spirit pour out powerfully upon them, Lord. May your Spirit, in a powerful way, anoint and result in equipping. May your Holy Spirit pour forth on old, on young, on black, on white, on male, on female, on all persons. We pray for that in woven, and we receive it and welcome it. In Jesus' name. How does the Spirit come? Second heading, second metaphor, breath. Breath. This is a very striking image to me. John chapter 20, verse 19, when it was evening, the first day of the week, the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. This is a crushed movement. The Jesus movement is done. Shut down this church plant. They are over. There's no hope. They're afraid of the Jews. And yet, with the doors shut, in verse 19, Jesus stood in their midst and says, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And he said, Again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, <laughs> he, he breathed on them. He breathed. I don't mean to be irreverent here, but dude was dead a couple of days. Ooh, whoa, I mean, what would it be like, you know, I floss my teeth every Saturday night because I'm very sensitive in pastoral conversations. I just don't want to offend anybody. But here comes Jesus and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says something very interesting. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. But if you retain the sins of any, my goodness, this is powerful. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What he's talking about here is the priestly office of absolution, of mediation. 
If any of you have ever, if any of you in a former life were Catholic, you might know the experience of going to confession and the priest had the authority to pronounce absolution, very real forgiveness. But what Jesus is saying here is this power to pronounce absolution, to forgive, and to even retain sin, say you're not ready for forgiveness because you're not repentant. And I see that in you. I see that you're not ready and you're not able and your ego hasn't been confronted yet and in the end you just want to say sorry but you don't want to say you're wrong. So no, you're not forgiven. And this power to speak into somebody's life, he gives it to who? The pastors? The priests? Everyone. Everyone. Remember a couple of months back we did a series through Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. This was a German theologian who was martyred during World War II. And he says this, Jesus gave his followers the authority to hear confession of sin and to forgive sin in his name. And according to Jesus' promise, every Christian, every Christian can hear the confession of another. It's not experience of life, listen to this, it's not experience of life, but experience of the cross that makes you a worthy hearer of confession. It's not ordination, it's not letters after your name. It, if you are a Christian, you have the authority to hear and forgive sin. And it's not experience of life. It's experience of the cross. So I stand before you as a sinner. I'm not going to confess my sins, don't worry. But I do confess my sins regularly to people. And I have an accountability group to make sure that I'm healthy and safe for ministry and life and marriage. And to these group of men, I confess my sins, but I also hear confession of sins. And the interesting thing about this group of men that I've fallen in with, that have become my personal friends, who I'm rigorously honest with, they are all ages. A group of men from all backgrounds, from as young as 20 to as old as my dad. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if your dads, right, we have some dads here, goes to your son and confesses and says, I mean, how, how odd is that? But the thing is, as we confess our sins to one another, as a man, as an older man who's old enough to be my father, shares his truth with me, this has nothing to do with experience of life. This is not me saying, well, when I was your age, that's, this is what I, that this is how I responded. No, I, I don't know how to respond in your situation because I have not lived on this earth as old, as long as you have. However, I have experienced the cross. It is not experience of life, but experience of the cross that enables us to hear the confession of even the people that intimidate you. Even the people that you did not expect, they are sharing their truth with you. And you have not just the, author the, 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 the authority, but you have the responsibility to tell them, this is what I see. There are patterns I see. Yes, I receive your confession. It sounds like you're truly repentant, or I don't hear true repentance. We have this obligation to absolve or to retain, but we have to speak the truth. That's hard. Now, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? Let's think. Isn't it interesting that in, Acts chap um, in John chapter 20, Jesus says this in verse 21, um, 23. He talks about forgiveness right after he gives the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that right when Jesus 
imparts the Holy Spirit, he sanctions the practice of confession. Isn't it interesting that Jesus makes a connection between the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Spirit, with the practice of confession? I believe firmly, and it's been my experience, and this, this, this is the experience of many Christians, that confession, fresh on the heels of confession and repentance, you can expect the arrival of the Holy Spirit. But what I'm going to say here in the, third, in the next heading to come, we can't control the Holy Spirit. We cannot say, it's not the Wizard of Oz, I'm not going to go behind the screen and pull some levers and make you feel the Holy Spirit. We can't do that. I believe this as well. You can't control. The Holy Spirit comes when the Holy Spirit comes. The Spirit has agency, and it's not human. But the thing is, we can grieve the Spirit. We can ensure the Holy Spirit won't come. We can make sure the Spirit stays just outside of those doors and say, I can't come into here no matter, you know, in some ways, even if I wanted to. I believe God can do anything, but you know the, bat, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever heard that teaching? When you read about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the Gospels, in the greater context, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you a secret. It's not a four-letter word. We're afraid that we uttered the unforgivable. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's, as it's taught in the Gospels, has to do with the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus. In other words, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejection. If you don't want me to come in there, I can't come in. The Holy Spirit is saying, I respect your agency. I respect your free will. I respect your identity. I'm not going to invade if you don't want to be invaded. If you want to hold on to something, if you want to preserve something, if you're not willing to die, then no matter how much I want to, I can't come in because you are keeping me out. The Spirit of God can do anything. I believe it. But confession is clearing the clogged pathways. For those of us here that are in oil and gas, those pipelines, if they're jammed with gunk, the oil's not going to get through, whether it's up or downstream, whatever. From a business aspect, right? I know literally that doesn't mean up and downstream, but even from a business aspect, how much can we clog operations in an organization Confession and the Holy Spirit do go together. They do go together. And so Jesus breathes. He breathes on them. And then he talks about confession. But let me put a pin in there. Confession. Is there something that is keeping the Holy Spirit at bay in my life? You know, I'm, I'm not trying to speak psychobabble here. But I really believe the foundation of so many of our problems really is the ego. I'm not going to confess. There's nothing for me to repent. I'll be defensive. I'll be resistant. We speak Christianese so well. We do the church thing. But in the end, we're really difficult to be around. What I'm asking you just to consider today, what's holding me back? What's holding the spirit back? What do I need to let go of? Confession. But before I transition to the third heading, let me just wrap this up. Breath. What is it about breath that's so significant? Why does Jesus go, ah? 
Is there somewhere else in the Bible that God goes, ah, anybody know? In the Old Testament? I see some smirks. Come on. Genesis. Genesis, where does God do it? With Adam. God creates clay, and then he performs CPR. I want to be selective with the people who are going to perform CPR on me. God performs CPR, and he does it again in Acts. God does it in Genesis, and he does it again in Acts. He does it in the very beginning to create man. He does it in the end to revive and resurrect man. So the message that we're seeing here is that breath conveys the Holy Spirit to create life, but to also resurrect life. To resurrect life. How many of you here are in a place where you're weighing down, not released? Your doors are shut for fear of the Jews. What we need is somebody to come and breathe on us. The breath of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen? So, yes, we're talking about the Holy Spirit today, so we're going to pray. Let's pray once more. Let's pray once more with your eyes closed. I won't come around and breathe on you unless you want me to. <laughs> but receive the Spirit. Feel the gentle breeze. Yeah, that's probably the AC, but maybe something more. Existentially, feel the breeze in your life right now. Smell the breath of the resurrected one. In Jesus' name, receive, receive. May we receive. Yes, Lord. Wind. Let's talk about wind, third metaphor for the Holy Spirit in the Bible. The wind, the wind of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. And all were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Speaking in tongues. I'm not going to do a teaching here on speaking in tongues, but I will tell you I speak in tongues. You might think, you might write me off on that. That's something I've done ever since my, my holiness days in the Korean church. Something that I didn't do for a long time, and then since we've been here recently, I've begun the practice again. And I don't need to teach on it. I don't need to talk about the legitimacy of it or whatever. All I know is that there is a deep communing that happens when I speak in tongues and I pray. And not even in front of people, even on my own. It's my personal theory that speaking in tongues is actually not for show or for public. It's actually a prayer language that we use with words that we cannot understand or groans, as it says in Scripture, that can't be understood. I can't understand. I don't even know how to say what I'm feeling. But sometimes I just need to speak it out in Jesus' name and I just pray and the language communes with God in a way that my, my articulation is limited. And when I try to make reason of it and I, get, and I try to articulate what I'm feeling, I get stuck. You ever have that experience? Prayer that gets stuck? That's happened to me. Those are times where I just literally have to shut my mouth. 
But anyway, the Spirit comes, and it comes via wind. Wind. Now, what is it about the wind that is significant? The attribute of wind, especially in this day and age, um, we can talk about, you know, we're in Houston, oil and gas city, but we could talk about climate change. And I'm not making a political statement at all. It's not my intent. In fact, I'm wondering, I mean, reduction in emissions, I get it, but wouldn't it be cool if we could just, like, make a machine and send it into space, and then it could, like, we could control the wind? You know what I'm saying? Like, could we control the weather? Is there, we have, we've had so much rain this week, people getting flooded again. Uh, what, what in God's design is the purpose of that? There must be some purpose. I don't know. But could we prevent that? Is there a way to control? The, I don't know if we can ever control the climate. In the movies, they find ways to do this. Or in fiction stories, in science fiction. John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. What's being conveyed here is you can't control the wind. And the doctrine behind this, the Christian doctrine that really, it should, it should be believed by all Christians, it's this basic, simple doctrine of prevenience. Prevenience. That's the fill in the blank in your notes. Basically, prevenience means that God moves and moves first. What this does is it protects the agency of God. It says God is not somebody that, that, is, that, that, that we manipulate or God is something. He is outside of our agency. The doctrine of prevenience suggests that God is an independent actor. This is not the Wizard of Oz where you realize at the end this gigantic face and smoke and lights and everything, and then you pull the curtain back and there's a man behind pushing buttons. The Holy Spirit, we, we, we think we can manipulate the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit, like wind, moves when the Spirit will. For me personally, I told you that I received my baptism in the Holy Spirit in my early 20s. In the early 20s, that was my experience. I can tell you this, I did not expect it. I did not expect it to happen. In fact, I was in a point in my life at that time where I was really, um, I was losing my faith. I did not expect the Spirit to come in that way. I did not expect that change and transformation. The wind moves. God, we have to respect this. If we're Christians, we really believe that it's not just somebody pulling levers behind the curtain. We really believe that God is an independent actor. And God, like Aslan, is on the move. And God will show up. Because a wizard is never late. Bilbo Baggins, Frodo Baggins. God will show up. When the time is right, God shows up. He is an independent actor. The wind, this metaphor of the wind, finally gives way to the fourth and last image the fourth and last metaphor I want to use, and that's fire. Can't finish without fire. The Holy Spirit has fire. And I love this. One of my favorite verses in the Gospels 
it moves me deeply is Luke chapter 24, verse 32. The disciples had been walking on the road to Emmaus, and this stranger joins them and explains scriptures to them. He's not talking about the Rockets' game six loss to the <laughs> Golden State War. Was it game six? Game six? He's not talking about the news or the happenings in Jerusalem. He's explaining what? The scripture. He's talking about scripture, and their hearts start to burn. Elder, you joined us in Adult Sunday School today. I hope your heart was burning, not because of the, but because of the presence of the Spirit. And how many times in Adult Sunday School, in our Sunday School with Tracy and Blake, I mean, you've seen me cry. I've seen you cry. Because something is burning, and it wasn't last night's salsa. Something deep, something profound, something good. Friends, what I'm saying here, what I think the scripture shows us is that the spirit of fire, it's not just fire and emotionalism. Yes, it is. But you know what really sets my heart afire? When I, when I understand something in conjunction with the scriptures of God. When the Bible comes alive, Friends, it's not a dead document. I know maybe in university you had a professor that said, lift it up and tore the pages, it's just a book. It's just, it's more than a book. When the living words come alive and you feel just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? While he was explaining the scriptures to us? When I read stuff in the Bible, especially the Gospels, for me, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, my heart burns. I cry. The pages of my, of my Bible, there are some, there, you know, wrinkled pages. Friends, in the end, fire? Yes, it's a thing. I know in this church, I know in many churches, sometimes we can be a very subdued lot. I know that. I know that uh, in some high church settings, you know, oh, well, those enthusiasms, right? We, we, we can do without them. Fire is a real thing. Fire. Let me get back to the original. I, I cited Richard Bauckham. I said, credits to Richard Bauckham. Let me close with a quote by Richard Bauckham. It's a senior scholar at St. Andrews and at Cambridge. Stuffy guy, right? But listen to this quote. This image of the spirit as fiery passion is important for us. What afflicts a great many people in our society is a kind of apathy. The sense that there's nothing really worth caring very much about. Nothing worth devoting oneself to. Nothing worth giving yourself to unreservedly. Nothing to really be passionate about. People have come to be cynical about all great causes. Skeptical about real and inspired meaning in life. All one can hope to do with life is amuse oneself. You hear that? Entertain oneself. Amuse oneself. It's not difficult to catch that cultural mood. So we constantly need the Spirit to warm our cold hearts with the flame of God's love. To rekindle in us the passion without which life is not worth living. 
the fire of devotion to God and the fire of passionate concern for all that God cares about. And every now and then in this city, in this great vast city of what, what are we up to now? Five, six million people? We, we passed up Chicago, right? And the longer I'm here in Houston, I'm really beginning to network with a very broad range of people. And I'll meet some, some firebrand, passionate person, you know, another person in ministry. What do you do? I'm fighting against human trafficking or something. Like you found your fire. You found your passion. No, 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 let me rephrase that. The spirit has instilled a passion in you. You found your DNA matching. What is that great quote? When our deepest, oh God, somebody help me out here. When our deepest pleasure meets God's greatest need, this is vocation. Did I do that right? Somebody look that up for me. This is a famous work in faith quote. When God's greatest need meets our deepest passion, that's, that's vocation, that's a calling. Fire. Fire. Here's another quote. This is by George Bernard Shaw, who's a playwright. He wasn't a Christian, unfortunately. But, I, you know, he, he didn't have the Holy Spirit. But listen to this. This is so, this is, this is good. This is the true joy in life. The being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one being thoroughly worn out before you're thrown on the scrap heap, being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making me happy. Ooh, that's, that bites. We could live ourselves, we could live our lives Completely disillusioned. When I was 20 years old, I lost my faith. It was the worst example. You know, it was like a young old man, a cynical young, a cynical old soul, and a young, it's the worst thing. But when the Spirit came, the Spirit came and there was a transformation. And I was able to say, this is the last thing I want to finish with, I was able to say with Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, this was a man who followed Christ passionately, intensely, founder of the Moravians. I have one passion, and it is he, he only. I have one passion, and it is he, and he only. Mm -hmm.